Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined for the second time for you on the show this week. Luke, how are you doing? I am doing good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, so we are back for the second time this week with a little bit of an emergency podcast, but it's a little bit of a two for one week here on Peach Pod. Uh, but since this is our second one this week, I definitely want to recommend that you go back and listen to Luke's conversation with RJ Hadley. Uh, we put this out on Tuesday morning. RJ is a Democratic candidate for Secretary of State. And Luke, that conversation that you had with RJ, I really enjoyed. Yeah, it was fun to do. Like, I've known RJ for a pretty long time, which is uh, not the case with most people running statewide. So it was kind of fun just to catch up with him and see what his thoughts are on the Democratic Party and on his race for Secretary of State. And there's a lot of the history of the office. And that was a really fun thing for me because I did not know most of that stuff. Yeah, it was a great talk. So if you haven't gotten the chance to listen to that yet, uh, definitely go back and check that out. But on today's special, we've got two topics. For our first topic, we're going to talk about the collapse of the Senate Republicans' proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Um, As we've talked about a whole lot on this show, this is something that Republicans have been trying to do since the beginning of the Trump administration. It's something that's gotten delayed and delayed over and over again. Uh, But we think, or or at least I think, this might be the final uh, blow to this Republican quest to repeal and replace Obamacare. And then, uh, Luke, what's our second topic this week? You, You took care of this topic yourself this week. Uh, yeah, so uh, the same day I talked to R.J. Hadley, I actually talked to Gabe Shippey, who is my vice president of membership at Young Democrats of Georgia. But I talked to Gabe because um, we had had Reed Powell on, who was kind of on the ground on the Republican side for the John Ossoff race. So hashtag always Ossoff, we bring it back, we're doing the hits. And so Gabe Shippey had uh, knocked on a whole lot of doors for Ossoff's campaign, had a lot of experience there. And so we just uh, talked about that and ended up talking about Young Dems a little bit as well. So it was a pretty uh, interesting conversation and a little bit more insight into the Ossoff race. And uh, it seems like we can't get away from him. So uh, that might be our last talk, though. It might be our last Ossoff talk unless he uh, uh, comes back for a second round. Well, that might be our last healthcare talk too, but uh, who knows? This is this is definitely Peachpot's greatest hits today. Um, but with that, we'll dive right into topic number one. So we are recording on Tuesday night, and as of Tuesday afternoon, uh, we kind of put all the news together, and it looked like, at least for now, that the Senate quest to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act is essentially done. Um, but to catch you up on the news, if you haven't seen, so on Monday evening of this week. Um, Two senators announced their opposition to what is essentially a procedural motion related to the Republican Obamacare repeal plan. Uh, These were Senators Mike Lee from Utah and and Jeff Moran from Kansas. Um, Mike Lee wrote a blog post where he came out against an amendment that he was actually part of crafting with uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, but he ended up coming coming out against a a different version of this amendment, which he said would not result in removing enough of the Affordable Care Act's regulations on health insurance plans. And Jerry Moran uh, came out and criticized the process that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had used to push this thing right up to pretty much what we thought was going to be the final vote. 
Um, so both Lee and Moran join uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Maine Senator Susan Collins in opposing this proposal. And as of now, their four votes combined with United Democratic opposition basically stop this bill in its tracks. Um, so on Monday night, the same night that Lee and Moran made their announcements, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that the Senate would vote instead on a two- 2015 ACA repeal bill. This is pretty much a straight repeal bill, but it's only a partial repeal. It doesn't actually get it all to any kind of replacement for at least a couple of years. But it's one that doesn't really please anybody's complaints about this bill. And we'll get into it a little bit, but it it repeals the Medicaid expansion faster than the Senate proposal, and it does not repeal all of the insurance regulations that conservatives were so concerned with. So as of Tuesday evening, this vote is likely scheduled for early next week. And as of now, we anticipate that this is an effort that's finally going to fail. So here on Peach Pod well, on Tuesday it's, it's, evening. It's pretty much already failed because Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and uh, Shelley Moore Capico have already said they won't vote for it. So that's already the three. So. Yeah, So so if they stick together through the weekend through the rest of this week and through the weekend, then here on Peach Pod, we're going to pronounce Obamacare repeal dead at 7.49 p.m. Uh, well, um, you, you can do that, Kyle. I, I, I am of the opinion that this bill is the Terminator and that it will always be back. I, I'm going out on a limb. I think it's done. Um, but let's just dig into a little bit of this, Luke. Why do you think that this bill failed? I mean, this is a promise that Republicans have made for seven years. This is something that ultimately ended up making it through the House after it was had, had to be pulled back and then voted on again. Um, you know, the Senate is really the last battleground for this for Republicans. Why do you think that this effort ultimately looks like it's going to fail? I mean, I hate to be glib about it, but it's just like Obamacare is their idea. <laughs> you know, like Obamacare was the idea that the Heritage Foundation came up with as an alternative to what Hillary Clinton was trying to do in the 90s with Bill Clinton as president. And, you know, when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee who ran against Barack Obama, was the governor of Massachusetts, he did this plan. So it's just like we took their plan and they decided for political reasons that they were going to oppose it. And now that they're in charge, they've decided for political reasons to get rid of it. Um, and, you know, some of the leaguers have. And the policy does not play out. They do not have a policy alternative because we took their best idea. And so everything that they could come up with that would be an alternative to what we currently have would make the problems that they're trying to fix or that they claim they are trying to fix worse. And some people don't care about that. Like, Rand Paul, he doesn't care. Mike Lee, he doesn't care. Ted Cruz, they don't care. They don't care that this would make a lot of people lose health insurance or lose the ability to pay for health insurance. That does not bother them. However, that seems to bother other Republicans that have tough elections and actually have to face their electorates, and that has made them not want to support this legislation. So, at the end of the day, I think the two major factors for why... This fail is that one, the reason why they were against it in the first place was for political reasons, and the only thing they could agree on is they didn't like the Obama part of the care, and that is gone now. Obama is no longer president, and there's no real points you can gain from being against Obama because he's like on a beach somewhere writing his book, and that's not a real motivator for folks anymore. And then the other thing is is since you don't agree on anything, but the fact that you just don't like Obama, which 
is not enough to pass a bill, there's no way that all 52 senators could come up with something they all agree with because the idea that's in place is their idea. Yeah, I mean, this is something that John Boehner was saying on his way out the door when he left the House speakership is that Republicans have never been able to come to an agreement on what the party's proposals on health care should really be. But I think that sort of what this leads to, sort of the only position they felt like they could be in is to try to sell this proposal by being extremely dishonest about what the outcome was going to be, what what it was going to be like under this Republican health policy utopia that they were selling. Um, and they were dishonest about it, not only to their own voters in terms of, you know, if you look back at the government shutdown from 2013, where Ted Cruz essentially shut the Senate down over trying to basically force the Obama administration to not implement Obamacare. Um, that was something that was ultimately unsuccessful. And then all the way through to 2016, where they've continued to campaign on this based on a lot of lies on what it would look like. And those lies actually continued into the legislative process, particularly on the Senate side, in that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell couldn't even be honest with his own members about what the impact of this bill would be. Ron Johnson went on the Sunday shows this last weekend talking about how he was really concerned that Mitch McConnell was telling some of the moderate senators who were opposed to the Medicaid cuts, he was telling them that these Medicaid cuts would never happen, which was something that the conservative half of this inter-party fight wanted. They wanted to see these Medicaid cuts go into effect. And McConnell was saying they're never going to happen because a future Congress is going to end up, you know, overturning them. And then when officials from the Trump administration were at a meeting with um, the National Governors Association, a, bu- a bunch of governors from around the country, they were telling the governors to ignore what the CBO was saying about what the impact would the, of the bill would be, and that the Medicaid cuts that people on the left and anybody who was critical of this bill was so critical of, that these things weren't actually cuts and that the administration was going to give states so much flexibility in a way that they couldn't really explain, but that was going to somehow help the states absorb these cuts and that it wasn't actually going to hurt the state Medicaid programs. And so when you look at the different constituencies, the the different members of the Republican caucus, the different wings, and then Republican officials at the state level, not only were they dishonest with everybody outside the process, but they were dishonest with everybody inside the process. And that, I think, is was a really big problem for them in trying to get this thing done. Yeah, and there's two things I want to say real quick. One is that, like, you know, we're both Democrats. I'm the president of Young Democrats of Georgia. So, like, obviously we're biased in this and that we're going to have a very, you know, biased perspective towards a bunch of Republicans screwing something up. But in this specific issue, I don't think there's any other way to approach it but what you literally just said. Because this is the way that Mitch McConnell approached this legislation. It is the way that he approached this effort. And, you know, just another example of, like, talking about how it seemed like no one really knew what was going on. I remember not even, like, three weeks ago, I saw Marco Rubio on the Sunday show saying, like, oh, yeah, we're going to have hearings on this bill. So it's like either... Either everyone was getting lied to by Mitch McConnell or every senator thought that they could lie to the American people about them having hearings and, like, people not notice that or not care. Um, But I'm kind of leaning towards it, Mitch McConnell, because the thing is, 
is, you know, everyone sort of, like, makes fun of the fact that Donald Trump goes on TV, and he's like, I make the best deals, I make great deals, I, you know, I make tremendous deals, but, like, no one really has ever talked about Mitch McConnell's ability to make deals, because no one has ever called Mitch McConnell a great deal maker. Like, they've almost said the exact opposite, that he's, like, a deal breaker, and he stops everything, and so now that he's in a position where he has to do things, his scorched earth tactics don't work. If anything, they make it worse, because had he pursued a more open and transparent process, would it have sucked? Yeah, they would have been dealing with a lot of criticism, and they would have had a lot of hearings, and a lot of tough, you know, tough calls to make, and tough questions, but like, in comparison to what they're dealing with now, now they have people being critical of their bill, and saying their bill sucks, and being critical that they've had a horrible process. So if at least they, you know, approached this thing like a sane senator would have, and, like, you know, like, the Democrats approached Obamacare until, like, the very last moments where they make some changes at the end, this would be a completely different thing. Because, you know, I guess, at least in my mind, the logic of approaching it this way, there's only two possibilities. Possibility one is that Mitch McConnell was purposely trying to kill this thing, which from the past, like, 48 hours, it seems really clear that's not what he's trying to do because he's still pushing this to a vote. So it seems like he's actually trying to call all the senators bluffs and make them vote on this thing because he must see, must think that after all this time of saying they're going to repeal Obamacare that they'll still do it if, he, if they're forced to vote on it. So if it's not that, if it's not that Mitch McConnell's purposely trying to kill this thing from doing it this way, then it would be that he's used to being able to stop anything he wants, so I guess he's used, he's thinking that he can push through whatever he wants as quickly as possible. And what's ironically happened is the exact opposite of what he wanted, which is instead of not dragging out the process and making everything go faster by not having hearings and not having all the procedural things you usually have to do to do a bill, he's actually made it take just as long, because <laughs> it's taken them like six months to try to get a bill. And... They've had just as much, if not more, scrutiny than the Democrats had with Obamacare through approaching it this way. So, I don't really know what they've gained out of doing it this way. Well, and I think it is important that you mention that, that we are two Democrats here. But but this take, especially the um, the criticism of Mitch McConnell is something that a lot of that I've seen from a lot of conservative commentators too. So Ben Domenich, he's a writer at the Federalist. He wrote about how, um, and we'll link to this in the show notes. He wrote about how McConnell essentially blocked the Senate from experimenting with repeal options during the period that they had in 2015 and 2016, where they could basically pass any kind of repeal bill that they wanted, but that was ultimately going to get vetoed by President Obama anyways. But he he criticized McConnell for sort of foregoing that opportunity to try to work out some of the details, some of the differences in the Republican caucus on how to deal with this, and then basically bet entirely on his own ability to craft a deal and to bring conservatives and moderates together, to bring all the interest groups together, um, that he basically bet the whole thing on his own skill, and it turns out that he bet wrong. And this is, you can see this in the way that John McCain and Jerry Moran blasted the process. They, you know, McCain, who is 
just now recovering from surgery after he had to, after he went back to Arizona over the recess break and, and then is not back, which is what somewhat complicated some of this process for the Senate anyways. Uh, but he put out a press release from Arizona saying that he wanted a bipartisan open process in regular order. And it's worth mentioning that this is the kind of process that Mitch McConnell said he also wanted everything to be done in the Senate this way when he was making his case for why he should be majority leader before Republicans took over the Senate after 2014. Um, but but another piece of this, too, in, in a way that really indicates how how little of this debate was settled before they even got here and why this process of a, of a leadership-only process failed is that Avik Roy, he's a, he's a conservative health economist, and he was on Ezra Klein's podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about on there about how he felt like he had won a big victory within the Republican view of government responsibility for providing some sort of access to health insurance when he got the Senate to include uh, tax credits that are pegged to people's incomes. So instead of having the flat tax credit that was in the House's plan, it's basically an implicit admission by Republicans that government has some responsibility to provide additional help to low-income people to help them get health insurance. But that is not something, it it was something that ended up in the bill, but it wasn't a settled issue. And this was an issue that they were debating and that Avik Roy felt like he had won on after a bill had gotten out of the House. So they're right in the middle of the legislative process and sort of the foundational goal that they were considering whether or not this was a goal they wanted to meet was something that they hadn't decided on. You know, so, so I think that there was a huge void in terms of Mitch McConnell's mistakes. And then the second piece of this that I would add, and, and we'll hear from President Trump here in a second, is that I think that there was just a complete lack of interest and engagement from the White House, except sort of barely when it was needed towards the end of the House debate, and then almost completely not at all in the Senate debate. Um, but President Trump was somewhat blindsided by the two senators that came out to oppose this bill uh, on Monday night. And so on Tuesday afternoon, this is what President Trump said about that. And I think you'll also uh, agree that I've been saying for a long time, let Obamacare fail and then everybody's going to have to come together and fix it and uh, come up with a new plan and a plan that's really good for the people with much lower premiums, much lower costs and much better protection. I've been saying that, Mike, I think you'll agree for a long time. Let Obamacare fail. It'll be a lot easier. And I think we're probably in that position where we'll just let Obamacare fail. Uh, We're not going to own it. I'm not going to own it. I can tell you the Republicans are not going to own it. We'll let Obamacare fail, and then the Democrats are going to come to us, and they're going to say, how do we fix it? How do we fix it? Or how do we come up with a new plan? Well, they were not disloyal. They had their own reasons. I was very surprised when the two folks came out last night because we thought they were in fairly good shape, but uh, they did. And, you know, everybody has their own reason. But if you really think about it, you look at it, and we have 52 people. We had no Democrat support, which is really, you know, something that should be said. We should have had Democrats voting. This is a great plan for a lot of people. Uh, We had no Democrat support. We have 52 people. We had four no's. Now, we might have had another one somewhere in there, but essentially the vote would have been pretty close to, if you look at it, 48 to 4. That's a pretty impressive vote by any standard. And yet you have a vote of 48 to 4 or something like that. 
and you need more, it's pretty tough. So the way I look at it is, in 18, we're going to have to get some more people elected. We have to go out and we have to get more people elected that are Republican. Um, all right, Luke, so what did you think about President Trump saying that getting 48 votes and losing a vote by, by any measure is actually still pretty impressive? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I I don't even know. Like my my ability to respond to anything that Donald Trump says is like severely diminished over time. And at this point it's just like, wow, Donald Trump doesn't really understand how math works. What a surprise. Because it's just yeah, it's like no, no, by any measure I can think of many measures of why that is not a good thing and not successful. You know and what measure this is did- not successful for? Winning. Yes, exactly. We're not doing enough winning. That's yeah, the you know, that's the one thing. Uh, I I expected to be sick of winning by now. But actually, you know, I, uh, Democrats in a lot of ways have been winning ever since this presidency started. So and I'm I not guess, really sick of it yet. Yeah, I'm not um, sick of it. I could, I could have some more winning. But I do think this is indicative of just how key presidential leadership is in a big legislative push like this. Um so, well, I mean, like, one thing I want to say about this, like, in all seriousness, because, uh, you know, being a little flippant here, but, like, okay, imagine you're she- Shelley Moore Capco, right? Like, your state would be just decimated by this bill. Why would you vote for it? Because if you do, and you, like, really screw over half your state, then when that state gets pissed off and starts blaming you, then Donald Trump probably going to tweet out, Republicans are stupid. They passed a health bill. They're going to fix anything. I'll fix it. Elect me a king. You know, it's just like he's he's going to go against whatever he does and like have no deep knowledge of like, oh, I signed the bill that screwed everything up. Like he's not going to understand that, you know. So like why, if you're one of these senators that's concerned about what this bill would do to your state, why would you go out on a limb when you know for a fact that not only is your president not going to be like Barack Obama and be in the trenches and take most of the heat for this bill and be the one that gets the most blame for it, but he actually might go against you and criticize you for signing you know, for voting for it, even though he signs it later, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, why he would sold you do the that? house out. He sold the house out when he called the bill mean. Exactly. And then he, he's already picked a fight with Dean Heller, a moderate senator from Nevada he who was pick opposed a fight. to this. A, a group allied with him spent money against him. It's not like he just tweeted against him. They actively thought out a strategy to screw with him for coming out against them. And then it also came out this week that they're actively talking to potential primary opponents for Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who I think was actually a yes on this bill. He was! Like, he wasn't somebody who was on any target or or tentative list that I had seen. So, like, why would you be discussing those things now? It it is, like, very clear that, that... Trump is not going to have your back when it matters. And so I don't know why, like you said, I don't know why you would stick your neck out for him because he's not, you know, he's not going to be there for you. I mean, the thing is, like at the end of the day, the reason why Obamacare got passed is Nancy Pelosi knows how to count. Harry Reid was pretty reliable and everyone respected him and liked him. And Obama pushed this thing ridiculously hard and took a ton of the heat on it. Like that is why it got done. And... They didn't really have any of that because Paul, I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll throw Paul Ryan a little bit of a bone that like he was out there a lot and talked about it a lot and lied a lot. And that, you know, helps when you're trying to pass a bill that's really going to screw over a lot of Americans. 
But, you know, Mitch McConnell was pretty much just like, we got to do this because we said we were going to do it, so let's do it. And then Obama, and then Trump's like, I need a wing. I don't really care what it is. I just want a piece of paper that says Obamacare repeal on my desk, and I want to sign it and have a little ceremony, and you know. And that's pretty much, like, that was the selling point. Like, Donald Trump, you know, invites you over to the White House, gives you some medium rare, I mean, sorry, uh, medium well or well done steaks, and has two scoops of ice cream and says, I want to win. Please let me win. Please vote for this bill. You know, it's not really a great pitch. Yeah, it's not one that I it's not one that I would find convincing if I was a Republican member. It is funny, now we're gonna have the the mission accomplished two point photo op, which is Donald Trump standing there with all of the House Republicans celebrating the passage of the of the first version of this bill on the house, which is ultimately at least looks like it's going to go nowhere in the Senate. Um, which is but, really too bad. Cause I was really looking forward to the Lincoln style movie, like 30 years from now of Trump passing Obamacare repeal. And you know, all the bells in DC ringing as people rang in the streets celebrating the, the death of Obamacare. I'm sure some conservatives will make a movie about that saying that he did that regardless of whether or not it actually happens. But with that, and, and assuming that what looks like now, which is that the the last gasp of this bill is actually going to fail, um, which is generally looks, you know, like the most likely outcome right now. What do we think is next? Like, if you're if you're Democrats, Luke, you've you've won a big victory here. This is a promise that Republicans have made for seven years, and and then the the reality of governing has come to slap them in the face and and make them realize that this was a bad idea all along. But, you know, now Democrats are going to come back into this process. Probably there's going to be an effort to do maybe at least a minimal bipartisan fix on this. Um, But also there's there's going to be issues left for Democrats if they happen to take the house in 2018. Um, You know, this is not a settled issue. So from a democratic perspective, what do you think should be next? I mean, it's tough because, with the current leadership dynamics, I don't really see how anything bipartisan gets done because Paul Ryan is not going to touch this. He's not going to do anything. I, I can't imagine Paul Ryan allowing a bill with Democratic support to go through his chamber. So at, at this point, I think he would rather have the insurance markets crash than do that because he is well aware that the Freedom Caucus will just kick him out if he does that. And so there's no no political benefit for him doing that, and it'd be more likely political suicide for him. So for Democrats, I mean, I think definitely approaching bipartisan fixes in the Senate would be a good strategy and talk about the ways you could improve Obamacare because there definitely are ways that you can make it better. Um, and just stay vigilant and keep the energy up because as we saw the first time around in the house that this thing can look dead, but then be a zombie bill and pop back up because what president Trump has made very, very clear is that he has no implication, you know, no, he has no intentions of letting Obamacare do well and trying to help it because he's actually made it quite clear. He plans on doing the opposite and he's going to find ways to aggressively make Obamacare fail because he's under the insane, idea that if something under his watch and under his party's 100% control happens that because Democrats passed a bill almost over eight years ago people will blame them instead of him and 
I guess, I guess that just goes back to my, my root just confusion in all of this, is how politically suicidal all of the efforts to repeal this bill are because it would make all the problems they're trying to fix so much worse. So, like, when Donald Trump goes on TV and, like, literally says, I am going to make the healthcare markets worse, and I'm going to make you less happy with how healthcare is working... I plan. I promise you I'm going to do that, and you will blame the Democrats when it happens. It's just like, I don't really think people are that dumb. Like, I would be very surprised if everyone's like, you're absolutely right, Donald. I just watched you like a dump, you know, like a match and throw it at the insurance market, and I totally blame Barack Obama for that. So I'm going to go to the polls and vote against him. You know, it's just like, I don't understand how that plays out. So, uh... The alternative to that is that Democrats just have to keep the pressure on and make sure that Republicans are the ones that get the blame because it is their fault if anything goes wrong with the insurance market now because they control it and they are the ones that uh, can write policies to change it. So that's really the, the main thing to do. And then on everything else is just stay stay vigilant because this fight has made it very, very clear that this current governing coalition has a lot of trouble getting stuff done and there's a lot of things that they want to do that would be fundamentally harmful for the country and take us in a wrong direction uh luckily most of the things are not gonna be as bad as this healthcare bill would have been but still would be you know significant uh policy losses for the country if they get their way but we've already proven that it's a pretty hard coalition for them to keep together and actually get anything good done so i mean we've already proven that they can pick off some votes so i'd say you know learn from that and try to get some allies on the republican side that don't want to watch the country go up in flames so do you think there's a lot of activity among activists right now on the left and the big push from activists right now is to push for some sort of single-payer proposal um do you think that that is a place that Democrats should be looking or is it too early to commit to a specific proposal and continue to fight broadly for for access to health care in general? I mean, I think what we need to do as a party and, you know, I, I'm, I've never been a messaging guy. That's not my strength. I'm not going to I'm never going to be a marketer in the way that our president claims to be. Yeah, but from a fundamental, like, what I would want to see from the party and what I would want to see from the elected officials we have up in D.C., like, I would want them to focus on solutions and have multiple solutions so that we don't do what the Republicans did. Because what the Republicans did for all this time up until they got unified control of government, they were like, Obamacare sucks, we hate it, it's bad, it needs to go away, rah, rah. And they never had the next part of the conversation, which is, and by the way, this is how we're going to fix it. And so if we're going to say the Republicans' plans to repeal Obamacare are really stupid and we don't like it and we don't want them to do that, then we need to have several alternatives of how we want to fix it because when we get back in power again, and we will, like we have to have a plan. Like we have to have... Multiple, you know, multiple plans that we can all kind of come together on and try to 
compromise on and figure out what the best course for the country is. So single payer is definitely part of that conversation. And I think someone should come up with a single payer bill, get it scored by the CBO, know what it's going to do if if we do it and have an alternative that's like a public option and a private market, you know, all the alternatives, get them out there so that when we get back in charge, you know, a Democrat president has some options on the table and kind of knows who would support what. And so that we don't get into this situation where we look like, you know, we were caught by surprise that the healthcare market still somewhat in trouble and needs a little bit of help. Like that is just, it's unacceptable at this point and we got to be ready for the time where we get in charge. And then the other thing is too, we need to think about is, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, there's a pretty decent chance that come, you know, 2019, we're going to see a Democratic House, you know, Democratic Senate's a lot harder just based on the math and who's up, but it's quite possible we'll have a Democratic House, and, you know, the Senate is a lot better at compromise than uh, the House is, Uh, so, I mean, if you got a Democratic Senate, you got a Republican House, that's pretty close. I mean, there might be a coalition there that could vote on something, and Trump doesn't care about the policy, so if they're like, hey, this will make you look good, he'll be like, sure, I'll sign it. Um, so, you know, like, that that that's what I would be looking towards if I was in leadership of the, you know, House or Senate. I'd be thinking about what would President Trump sign in two years if we had control of a chamber, and that would be a marked improvement. You know, definitely don't see any ground if that's if that's the only option you have is see ground or stay at the status quo stay at the status quo but if you think you can make a deal then you know make a deal and improve the insurance markets for the short term and then you know if you get full unified control Dem- democrats in all three branches then hell try to uh, try to do single payer well this this is where i want to wave the caution flag on single payer a little bit here I think that the lesson that Democrats need to take from this, if if you're just kind of watching from the outside, is that the sort of dogmatic approach to ideology first without any respect for the details or respect for the political process, I think that is really why Republicans ended up in this situation. And then they created for themselves a governing coalition based on candidates who had made promises that they could not keep. And I think if you are... Taking a look at the push. I got to push back real quick, though. I don't think that's mutually exclusive, though. Like, you can approach a very ideological policy in a very ideological way. Well, I don't think that they did that, though, either. Well, what, 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 the Republicans didn't or the Democrats did The Republicans. Yeah, of course. No, of course the the Republicans didn't with this bill, but I'm saying, like, if Democrats get get the uh, House back, then, like, they can approach single-payer in a very, like, thoughtful way. Just because yeah, but, it's a more extreme policy doesn't mean it has to be approached ideologically. No, but what I'm saying is that they that Republicans did this before the legislative process. And so when you look at what's going on in California right now with their push for single payer, there's the the groups that support a state level single payer in California have been criticized for not negotiating in good faith or, or being very clear about certain California budget and legal hurdles in terms of implementing that bill. And they basically blasted, we'll, we'll link to this because I don't want to get into all the details now, but but they basically blasted the, the Democratic leader in the state assembly. And, and this is a state government completely dominated by Democrats. So this is an argument going on within the Democratic Party. And moderate Democrats in California have been critical of the way that this single payer supporting group in California has pushed single payer without paying attention to the details. They've 
you know, they pushed it in sort of an ideologically focused way in a way that is ignoring the political and legal implications of what they're trying to do. And so I'm like you, I'm sort of in, I have sort of the goal in my mind is universal coverage and I'm sort of indifferent about how you get there. But the lesson that needs to be learned is that you have to pay attention to the legislative process. You have to be realistic about the needs of different groups involved, the people that you want to have access to health coverage, but also the industry groups, the, the doctors, the providers, the insurers, everybody involved. And I think that there is this notion among people on the far left that the idea of single payer is to pull health insurance coverage completely out of the private market and give it out as a public good. Um, and if if you start from that core belief, it sort of leads you to automatically discount the interests of health insurers and providers and anybody else who's sort of the established players in this market right now, because your your take would be that government should just take this over. And so I think that that is sort of the pitfall. When you look at what, how this process went through for Republicans, they did not consult the industry. They didn't make deals in the way that the Obama administration did for the Affordable Care Act. And I think that is sort of where the vulnerability is on the single payer side. And so I so I do think that we need to have a more serious conversation among Democrats right now. And as we get to this point where Democrats might be in charge of health policy in the future, about what this actually looks like in a realistic way, and not have a single payer or whatever universal health care proposal that Democrats end up pursuing, not selling that on lies and completely disconnected from the realities of governing. Um, I think that's where the Republicans went wrong, and I think that's a mistake Democrats should not follow up in making in the same way Republicans did. Yeah, I mean, obviously I agree with that. It's just, I guess I just don't see it as mutually exclusive, that like that's the way we have to approach it because it's an ideological policy. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't, I think if you, if you take a technocratic approach to single payer, you can figure it out. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm on the same page, and you know, it, it's at, at the end of the at, at the end of this thing, we we what we need to do like for the country is just come up with a way to stop having this fight for a little while because health healthcare is something you can't like play around with, and due to the way that the Republican Party has approached it, it has caused so much chaos that you know insurance companies don't get a lot of sympathy, but, you know, I'm going to give them a little bit of sympathy right now in, in that, like, I if I ran an insurance company, I have no idea what to do because the government would just basically be constantly lying to me and giving me no reason to have any faith that if I join the market that I'm actually going to get paid in the way that I'm supposed to be compensated as a company. It's just, like, there's no way that that's tenable long-term. And I just... uh. I just hope that we can come to some sort of resting point for a little bit and not go back and forth between super conservative proposals and super liberal proposals that, you know, would really fundamentally reshape a sixth of the economy and have it be unstable to the point where every time the government changes hands that we're going to go in the exact opposite direction. Yeah, I agree with you there. So so I think that's a good point to close on. And, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to you and Gabe for topic number two. Hello, and welcome to another Peach Pod conversation. I am your host, Luke Boggs, and I am joined today by Gabe Shippey, my 
uh, fellow young Democrat and my vice president of membership. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things probably, but uh, we're, we're going to start off with hashtag always Ossoff and talk about yes. the John Ossoff race, potentially for the last time on the program, but probably not. Um, I know you, you have not gotten a chance to listen to us too much, Gabe, but um, uh, we were basically talking about Ossoff so much that it was it was painful <laughs> almost <laughs> um which i'm sure you're sympathetic to since you worked on the campaign a lot so just uh just to start us off like uh, what what did you do with Ossoff's campaign and you know uh what were your experiences well sure um i started out in april before the first election the big jungle primary is just a field canvasser um after that was over uh, once they decided to bring their field outreach team uh, back to Roswell, I joined the team again, and I was promoted to field manager. So I had teams of canvassers um, that I was working with and guiding as we went throughout the district and uh, met with voters and you know knocked on doors, reminded folks about the election. Um, I know the first phase after the initial primary was to sign people up for um, absentee ballots because we knew how important the early voting and the mail-in ballots would be for Ossoff. So that was the first phase. And then after we completed that, um, we transitioned into basically reminding people about the election, getting folks out for early voting, and trying to have a real grasp on how many people um, were going to turn out for Ossoff. Yeah, I found it really interesting that Ossoff's campaign pushed the absentee ballot so much because traditionally in Georgia, that's been something that Republicans have been really, really good at and ensuring that their voters voted by just making sure they fill out absentee applications and, you know, let them vote from their homes. And that's something that um, traditionally had been just really tilted toward the Democrat, uh, sorry, tilted toward the Republicans. Sure. And so I was surprised when... Uh, seeing the first round of voting, how much of the absentee was actually for Ossoff. Yeah, those were encouraging numbers in the first round. And there's another aspect to this, too, which is just the timeliness of the second election. Um, We're looking at middle to late June. It was June 20th. So there was a concern there that a lot of people might be on vacation. They might be out of town. So if we could get those uh, ballots in before the election or even before early voting, we could catch a lot of voters who... Uh, might be leaving town and won't have an opportunity to go in person. Yeah, so since you were on the team uh, during the jungle primary, did you ever think that Ossoff was going to be able to pull it off in that first round, or were you always sort of of the belief that it was going to be a runoff situation? Um, Realistically, just because of poll numbers that I recall from the first um, election in April, I remember he was capping out at like 45%, if I remember correctly. He ended up getting 48%, which was incredible. So that gave us a lot of optimism going into the second round. Though, um, unfortunately, that's about the same as he got in the second round. Exactly. Yeah. So he kind of peaked out that first one. That's what it seems um, like, yeah. And so one, one thing I was kind of curious about, because there's been a lot of talk about how in the first round of voting, Ossoff really focused hard on the anti-Trump element. And then... Once it became the runoff, he kind of became a more milder, milk toast candidate focusing on local issues, which is really important, but he was far less inflammatory. Um, and like being on the ground and actually like knocking on doors and talking to voters, did you, was there like a shift in the messaging from the campaign? Did they like ask you to like shift your messaging or was it consistent throughout? Um, it did remain pretty consistent. And, you know, when you're working the field operations, 
Um, we're not responsible for a whole lot of the messaging or anything like that from the campaign. We're just focused on turnout, identifying who our supporters are, and making sure they get out to vote. But I will add to what you're saying, though, um, and just maybe second what you're saying, actually, in that I found that kind of frustrating myself a bit because um, when you look at the timeline between April and June, that's right in the midst of all the chaos that was coming out of Washington. You know, there's leak after leak, you know, Trump's erratic behavior. And I really think the campaign could have capitalized on that by tying Karen Handel to Trump, uh, which would not have been hard because she was so adamantly um, in support of the president. Um, so I, from a strategic standpoint, I wish they had gone that direction. But, um, you know, maybe they saw it differently. Um, you know, not my call to make, but yes, from the perspective of a field canvasser, no, it was very consistent from April to June. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I share your frustration because, like, for me, I feel like they really squandered that opportunity because there's ways to keep it about the district, but also not seem like you're ignoring what's happening on the sure. federal level. And for some extent, I was kind of concerned that they were. Um, another thing I, I was kind of curious about is. What was most of the the voter contact you doing turnout, and so they didn't really have you doing much persuasion? Did it feel like, or was it varied? Um, there wasn't much persuasion at all from what me and the teams that I had were assigned to do. We were there to identify our supporters and ensure that they come out to vote. Uh, we were in a lot of areas, especially in Cobb County, where we did run into a lot of handle supporters. So, um, looking, you know, in retrospect. Sometimes I wonder about the strategy behind that as well, just simply because now that some of the numbers have come out from the various precincts, it seems like we are lower. Uh, turnout was lower in a lot of Democratic areas that are traditionally uh, vote for Democratic candidates. Um, and on the other hand, it was really high in the Republican areas, which, you know, as we all know, Republicans are some of the best voters in the yeah. country, just historically, <laughs> traditionally. And you're probably not going to change that, but. I think the way you counter that is by um, really digging in and making sure that you're turning out your own base so that you can either at least come close to being even or outperform Republican voters. Yeah, because what, you know, to plug our own show a little bit, what uh, our uh, kind of collaborator Austin Wagner found, I don't know if you saw the research he was doing, is yeah. that the highest turnout Ossoff counties were the lowest turnout counties and the highest turnout counties were the highest turnout for Karen Handel. Exactly. And so, um, you know, some of the reporting I saw was that Ossoff's campaign managed to talk to over 50% of the district. And so it's interesting to me because it seems like it's possible that in that um, desire to stretch and find voters who were willing to flip, maybe the messaging wasn't where it needed to be to do that because... You know, it's really hard to convince a Republican to not be a Republican. Right. And at a certain point, if, you know, Democrats keep showing up at Republicans' doors, they kind of get frustrating and might encourage them to turn out even more than they were going to otherwise. So that that's sort of like one of the um, debates that I think is important to keep having about this race because Ossoff's district, you know, Georgia 6, is not one that we have to win to take the House back. But it is a type of district that we will need to win, which is the higher educated districts, the districts that make a little bit more money, because those are the Republicans that have already shown a willingness to 
flip sides, and that's why I'm really happy to see that a lot of attention has tor- uh, gone away from the uh, Georgia 6th and almost instantly gone to the Georgia 7th yep. for Rob Woodall, since that is a district that's very similar in composition of like the type of district, but it's actually significantly more favorable to Democrats uh, during usual years, and since um, it's already been proven to be an unusual year, uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see uh, how that develops. I know there's a lot of candidates on the Democratic side already lining up to go against Woodall, so I'm encouraged by the activity I'm seeing there. So what, what did you see, because you know, we're, we're both veterans of multiple campaigns, sure. uh, being on the ground, did anything like feel significantly different for Ossoff's campaign? Like, were the volunteers like more fired up, or were they more like pissed off at Trump but didn't really care about Ossoff? Like, what, what was it like, you know, working with people actually doing the day-to-day work on the campaign? Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to go back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago, which was, you know, the anti-Trump sentiment that I thought played out not only with Democrats, of course, but there were a lot of um, Republican voters who I met while I was canvassing who said, you know, we voted for uh, Republican presidential candidates our entire life until 2016. Um, We can't stand this situation right now. We think Trump's a train wreck. So in in response to that, we're going to vote for Ossoff. So I do think there is a heavy anti-Trump sentiment that really carried the campaign um, not only on our side, but with disaffected Republicans who voted for Ossoff as well. And that's why, again, um, at, at risk of repeating myself, I wish the campaign had kind of stuck with that theme because mm-hmm. I wonder how many other of those Republicans uh, may have been out there who we could have convinced at the last minute or at least um, brought them out to vote if they sat at home. So Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point um, because, as we already mentioned, the turnout on the Republican side was really, really good. And while the Democratic turnout was not bad, it wasn't enough to overcome our disadvantage in the district. And that's that's something um, I've heard a lot of people uh, concerned about is that this loss, since it was built up so much that this race was potentially winnable for us, the fact that Democrats lost is going to like really discourage people. So like, have you felt discouraged by this or like what have you, your feelings post-loss been? Well, here's the deal. In 2009... Um, after President Obama was elected, there were four special elections that year, and Democrats won all four of those. And then, of course, fast forward to November of 2010, and we all know what happened. Republicans took back control of uh, the House of Representatives and perhaps the Senate as well that year. No, we no, held on to the Senate until 14. Yeah. Until 14. Four, okay, yeah. well, thank you. We, yes. They did take back the House, though. So. Um, that, you know, just from a historical perspective there, that gives me encouragement. But it, it, there's a larger issue here. And I think that win or lose, we have to compete every time because, you know, if you're competing, you have at least a 50% chance of victory, right? If you're not competing, that's 0%. So we have to be competing in every district, every state, and not just Congress and Senate, but also um, school boards, city councils, county commissions. So, um, to answer your question, no, I'm not discouraged because I, I think it's important that we're bringing our message to the voters and we're doing it consistently every election and even in really tough districts where you know our chances may not be as high. Um, I think it's important that we have a presence and we give voters a choice on the ballot. Um, otherwise, you're just you know conceding defeat to the Republicans, so and we can't afford to do that right now. Yeah, because that's something I've been 
consistently frustrated with uh, in Georgia politics is that we, as a party, somehow managed to fail again and again and again to actually get enough candidates on the ballot. So if some amazing wave happened and every single Democrat wins, that we don't have enough candidates that we could actually take back the state house in Georgia. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever seen an election where I was paying attention that that was the case. And even in places as progressive and as democratic as Athens, you know, we have three state reps and two of them are Republicans and both of them went unchallenged in 2016 in a presidential year that, you know, looked winnable. Um, for Democrats, we could not manage to get someone to put their name on the ballot. We could not manage to get someone to walk into a building, pay a couple hundred dollars, put their name on ballot, and then go home and watch TV for the whole election. Yep. Like, we failed <laughs> to pass that threshold, which is a very small threshold. And, you know, I'm worried that um, we're going to still be in that situation uh, going forward. Uh, happily, you know, on the congressional level, that seems less likely. It seems like we're going to have the attention there that that deserves. But, you know, everybody wants to be a congressman. Nobody wants to do a state house or state senate election and, you know, be be there for a couple of years and build up some experience. And then that's how you become a congressman, usually. Exactly. You know, the John Ossoffs of the world who can blast onto the national stage, raise a bunch of money and run a really, really good race. Uh, right off the bat, like that's not a lot of people. That's a very small population of folks. Yep. So that's that's frustration in mine. I'm hoping that that's not the lesson that people <laughs> learn from this race, and that like, oh, I can run for Congress and raise you know a couple hundred million dollars. And it's like, no, no, probably not. <laughs> like, yeah, it's 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 concerning for sure. No, that, was, that was quite an anomaly. So yeah, and so, but the thing is, it's just like, and this this almost you know. Obviously, it's a special election, so the situation's totally different. It's a completely different situation. But it's just like with a with you know one eighth of the funds and talent that Ossoff you know showed us, like you could win a state house seat pretty easily. You know, you blow it out of the water if you worked that hard and had that much attention behind you, and you you know knew the issues as well as he did. And so, I think that's just a firm example of how much more we should be paying attention to those elections and trying to focus on having those win, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, um, that's part of the reason I had the Young Democrats help uh, Christine Trebish, uh, yes. you know, in her election in the state Senate uh, 32 race instead of just focusing on Ossoff, even though her race was going on while his race was going on. We diverted a couple resources for a couple hours <laughs> to think about something else besides Congress. And, you know, unfortunately, that was unsuccessful as well. But, um but we were out there, and we, we tried. We were out there, and we tried, and, and you know, people got to know that, like, yes, Democrats exist, and they're all not Nancy Pelosi and scary in right. California, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, it, it turns out most of the voters in uh, GA6 think that John Ossoff is literally Nancy Pelosi. Yes. And that's that's why yes. they vote against him. Uh, yeah, that's one thing, yeah, kind of facetiously, but, like, did you ever, like, go to a door and someone be like, I would vote for John Ossoff, but I'm really concerned that he's Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> like, did, did that ever come out? Because I am a constant skeptic of, like, the effectiveness of, like, accusing someone of being Nancy Pelosi is. Sure. Um, did that actually ever seem to be effective? Well, I got a lot, I got a lot of that, uh, the Nancy Pelosi stuff. But then, you know, you, you get even worse, which is just the alt-right conspiracy theory stuff. And the problem is, and and it was unfortunate for Ossoff, it wasn't fair, but he got tied into all the you know national resentment that Republicans harbor towards Democrats. 
they kind of they basically associated him with all of that. So like so what, like minds. for example, what what did you run into? Like what were some of the things they were saying? Oh, just topics that were you know about President Obama giving. Uh, billions of dollars to the Iranians to build okay. nuclear weapons, that right. kind of stuff. I right. mean, literally one one voter, I was walking down the street going from one house to another, and one voter uh, was driving by, Yeah, uh, pulled over in his car just specifically to get out and tell me how I was wrong <laughs> for campaigning for Ossoff, and this is why, and, um, you know, I was young, and he understood why I was probably doing it, but I was in the wrong direction. So it was kind of amusing, but it was disturbing as well because it was a microcosm right. of what we're kind of seeing all across the country where there's just this, um, you know, the Republican alt-right mindset in this country is just, it's a complete alternate reality. Yeah. But these people so, are buying it, and they're yeah. going to the polls with it. So, yeah, So, but the Nancy Pelosi thing actually was a thing. Like, a lot of people were like, I'm concerned he's going to just do what Nancy Pelosi tells him oh, to do. Oh, absolutely. Oh, man. I'm so disappointed in that. That's still effective. It's just like... Um, and, I, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth on the whole Nancy Pelosi thing. It's like, I, I acknowledge that she was an amazing House Speaker, and during, you know, the... 2006 to 2010 i mean she just killed it like she never lost a vote you know she knows where her caucus is she still knows where her caucus is but it's just like i just wonder what it says either about the party or about the country that she is such an effective like whipping post like the ability to just like say the words nancy pelosi and make like republicans like go cold (laughs) you know like and freak out like why is that so effective is is concerning to me and so you know obviously there's some days where that makes me you know, pissed off and want to defend her. And then there's other days where it's just like, well, why don't we just move on, <laughs> you know, and get some other leader. But, you know, I guess at the same time, they'll, they'll probably find a way to demonize her since they, you know, effectively uh, demonize the other leaders that we had at the time of uh, Harry Reid and Obama. And I guess, um, you know, there's never anyone talking about getting rid of Harry Reid. And so it's just like, you know, it kind of makes you, makes you wonder why she is such a supernova of attention that, um, seems to be effective yeah i agree with you um and and i'll be honest with you full transparency i lean on the side of you know digging our heels in and defending her because just like you said yourself um they're going to demonize anyone we put up there you know regardless um and i think it is uh particularly you know notable to a lot of people especially millennials and, and young ladies who are paying attention to politics or perhaps getting involved in politics that it just seems ironic that they're going out of their way to demonize this woman who's in a position of leadership. And I, I'm not sure if there's anything that she, she being Nancy Pelosi, could do or could not do to change that. Right. Um, the Republicans are going to demonize people. That's what they do. That's how they shore up support within their base. So I understand your concern where it might be time for a fresh approach, fresh leadership, a lot of people are saying, well, we're zero, you know, we're 0 for 4 on these special elections. But if you look at all those places where we lost over the past few months, the margin of, of defeat for Democrats was much more narrow than it's been in years. Yeah. So, you know, we're making gains. Um, we're competing, which, again, I think that's first and foremost uh, the most important thing we need to be doing, but I don't think we're moving in the wrong direction. No. So that's why I've, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to um, put the blame at the doorstep of, of leader Pelosi when we're actually moving in the right direction and making gains in places that weren't even, 
you know, considered serious consideration for a Democrat to win before. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, the thing, the thing that I like and very interesting is the fact that like Archie Parnell was like closer than Ossoff's race. <laughs> and it's just like, what's happening here? Cause I kind of feel like if, if Republicans aren't careful, then they're going to lose a bunch of races that they have no business losing right. because they're not going to pay attention to, like, the next Archie Parnell and, like, you know, we're going to pick up some seats that we have really no business in, which is exciting for me because, personally, there's a lot of Democrats in the Senate that I like that we have around the country, and they're up in 2018, and I'm hoping that this, um, you know, these margins are going to be enough to protect them. Uh, because, you know, the, I think the party's a lot stronger because obviously both you and I are pretty progressive. We yeah. get frustrated by Joe Manchin a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you know, it's from my, my family's home state, West Virginia, though not my home state. But it's just like he's actually a good senator. He cares about his people. And sure, like he, you know, uh, isn't with us 100% of the time, but he's with us 80% of the time. And he has been a fearless protector of Obamacare and not even for one moment flinched on that issue. And I think that alone makes any of the talk of primarying him just defunct in my mind because he he understands his constituency and he makes the party the big tent party that we want to be. And I don't think aiming the guns at our own people, especially right now, is going to be the way that we go forward. And, you know, we can be the party that has Elizabeth Warren and Joe Manchin in it and be stronger for it. And sure, I think yeah. that is that is where we need to continue to keep our mindset because that's how we're going to win some of these other races is that you localize them and you make them about the issues that people care about. And, that's, and, and Manchin shows it in a way that I think people don't give him credit for because he has been fearless in not only saying that Obamacare is important, but that it doesn't go far enough. And that, you know, Democrats can be progressive on the issues that really, really matter to their communities and, you know, be a little lighter on gun control. But then again, Manchin's also an example since he was with the Manchie-Tuman bill. So it's just like, I don't know, I feel, I, I'm just like personally like feel like he gets too much crap. And that, right. you know, Heidi Heitkamp, you know, does too because she is basically tailor-made to win North Dakota in a way yeah. that no other Democrat could. And I feel like ignoring those skills and the way that that helps the party grow is a way that we're going to get in trouble in the future. And so I think... 2018 is going to be really, really interesting. And I'm looking forward to, to see what we can do. And in Georgia, especially, I feel like we have a lot of untapped talent that is waiting to, to just get off the sideline and really change the state. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you, by the way, I'm glad you threw that in there about um, Joe Manchin supporting the background check <laughs> expansion in 2013 in the wake of the uh, Sandy Hook elementary shootings. Um, because that that took a lot for a senator from West Virginia who basically campaigned saying that, you know, no way in hell are we going to, am I going to support anything that infringes upon the Second Amendment for him to he stick his He shot the cap and trade that. bill. Right, <laughs> He literally. shot it with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this is definitely not an anti-gun yeah. guy. Yeah, so for him to do that was phenomenal. And I think um, what you're, you know, referring to here speaks to a larger issue in the Democratic Party, which is, I think we're a little bit obsessed with the labels, the progressive, the moderate, the centrist thing, where, um, just like you said, if we have elected officials who are serving their constituency in a way which benefits the people that they're elected to serve, 
then I think, you know, that's that's a sign of being progressive in itself. Yeah, exactly. So. And, you know, making decisions that help that constituency. Um, right. Yeah, talking about titles, uh, I've been thinking about this the other day because someone asked me, and maybe, maybe since, you know, you're a little bit more uh, on the left than I am. Sure. Um, what is the difference between progressive and liberal? People keep asking me this. I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what the difference is. It's so, yeah, it's one of those. It, it's so amusing when I hear that question come up. Um, it's actually kind of obnoxious in my opinion. But, okay, I'll go ahead and give you my views since you asked. Yeah, yeah, of course. I just think progressive is a a newer, um, more modern term to express the same thing that liberal was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Right. Um, and it could be a thing, too, where I don't want to overthink it or overanalyze one or two words, but it could be a thing where Republicans did such a good job of demonizing that one word that we, you know, folks on our side felt like we had to either change the word or reinvent it or put it in a new suit or whatever. Yeah, no, I but think I think you're not wrong because I, I think I think I think it kind of goes both ways. I think there's the side of it that like, ooh, you know, the uh, the Republicans really really tainted the word liberal. But then there's also the other side that like all the people that the like Sanders wing of the party tend to attack are the people that 20 years ago were calling themselves liberals. And it's, you know, it's like we got to distinguish ourselves from those folks and that's that's part of it. Um yeah, so that's that's interesting because I've yet to hear anyone give me a really like <laughs> Webster's dictionary answer right. on on these two different terms, and because it just it seems very muggy to me. I think it's a different term for the same ideology. Yeah, that's the simplest answer I could give you on yeah, that. Yeah, probably. And it just uh, speaks to you know kind of the absurdity of as you experience as well the internal politics where we're you know going through these circular firing squads. And, <laughs> And then you kind of think, well, man, yeah, it's like why? Why is every Democratic Party meeting in the same way as a Quentin Tarantino movie? You know, it's like all the guns are just on each other. Um, Good analogy. Yeah, it's just like you know, maybe, maybe you can help illuminate this for me and for some people we listen to. It's like why? Why is this fight still going on? Because like you're definitely someone, at least in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong, but like in my opinion, you are someone who's like very clearly in the Sanders camp. Absolutely. But you don't hate everyone else in the other camps, and you can talk to people on both sides. So, like, why, why is this anger so visceral for the people, you know, the people that supported Bernie Sanders, and they feel like they're constantly getting, you know, crapped on by everyone else in the party? Like, why, why is this still happening? Either even after you know the election's over, our side lost. We've you know we've really raised Bernie Sanders up. Even the people that support Clinton as a good voice for the Democratic Party, we support a lot of the same policies as he does. Like, what what is it? <laughs> what is it that's right. going on? I think there's a couple things. What comes to mind first for me is I think there's a feeling within the hard left progressive community, which, um, you know, again, like you said, I'm probably a part of that, even though I don't share that resentment towards the, the Clinton folks. Um, I think there's a feeling that over the last 30 years, the Democratic Party has drifted to the center. And, and what really used to be what we call Republican light is now yeah. Democratic. So I think there's an uneasiness about that. Um, I think there's an uneasiness about certain things that were leaked into the press about the, you know, the internal happenings of the Democratic Party uh, or Democratic Party primary 
Um, you know, you know, with the WikiLeaks yeah, yeah. emails, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. There's a couple things going on there, but um, well, I'll close out in answering that question, but also by just reminding people too that um, a lot of the folks who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary were not what you call lifelong Democrats. Right. Um, for me, I am a lifelong Democrat, and I say that proudly. I'm a progressive, but I'm all, I'm a progressive Democrat, and um, I have no qualms about talking about that. But when you have folks that, you know, for years weren't involved with the party, um, probably won't be involved again unless we come up with another Sanders-esque candidate and they float in and out, um, it becomes a little frustrating for someone like me who's trying to, you know, help reform the party in what little way I can, you know, here on the ground in Georgia. But to have folks from the outside poking and prodding who don't want to come in and get involved and help um, to enact or advance the reforms that they're complaining about that we're we're not doing ourselves. So yeah, and that's probably a little bit more than than answering the initial. No, question no. I mean, asked, it's it's a big it's a big feeling. issue and something that um, I haven't really had a chance <laughs> to talk with someone on the show about it because you know both me and Kyle are kind of a you know, the more pragmatist type folks. And so, sure. you know, it tends to be something that's a little alien to, to us. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, um, is it's, it's something I've tried to wrap my head around because I have always feel like the frustration is not totally unjustified because there's a lot of things that happened during the primary that frustrated me as well, even though I was a supporter of, uh, Clinton, from the beginning, I always make it an effort, you know, because I was the executive vice president of Young Democrats back then. You know, I, I make an effort to try to go to Athens for Everyone meetings. I went an effort to go to, like, San, Athens for Sanders meetings and stuff like that sure. just to make sure that, like, the party as an institution was being represented and also opening its doors and arms to these folks because, as you said, so many people weren't involved in the party before and now probably won't be and i think that's a shame because the party is people and you know the the thing is is that institutions are not always biased against people who think differently than the institution does but institutions are always biased against people that don't take time to learn how the institution works yes and that if you're not willing to follow the rules of an institution that's not the institution holding you back that's you holding yourself back because nothing stops people from going to a meeting and participating in things that's what um has frustrated me continuously in this is that there's constructive and destructive roles that people can play and more often than not people that are outside of institutions go to the destructive role too quickly and you know there's definitely places um in the party where that's not the case where even if you do follow the rules there's people that shut you out and people that hold you back and It's it's finding the balance of opening your eyes to where that is happening, where it's not, I think is what's important. Because as I think you know, and I hope a lot of progressives know, our organization is pretty easy to get into. It's pretty easy to get into leadership. We practically beg you to get into leadership, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, so when like people are like, oh, the Young Democrats is just the establishment, I'm like, 
no. It's like once I get accused of being a corporatist, it's like, please give me the corporatist money because then I, I will, yeah, I will, you know, start spending on progressive candidates and they will lose their minds. It's just like we don't have any money. Like there's no, right. there's no one calling me up. Debbie Washerman Schultz does not know who I am. Like yep. you know that sort of that sort of thing is She's just not on speed though. She is not. Yeah, I've never met her. Um, I have met Marco Rubio though, so that's my only Florida <laughs> politician. Yeah, I have a signed copy of his book. It's a, it's a great memento. I just laugh at his his you know failure as a presidential. You're candidate. gonna get yourself in trouble. Here. I know, but it's. <laughs> I, you know, you have to you have to know the enemy to beat the enemy. So right, that's why right. I also read decision points. There are a lot of periods in that book. Right. Just, lots of lots of periods. Um, I think we'll wrap up here the, the same way I always wrap up, which is what question do you have for me, Gabe? Sure. Um, I'll since we're both with Young Democrats yeah. of Georgia, I'll I'll keep it related to that. Um, where do you want to see this organization at a year from now? Ooh, uh, the the main thing I want is for everyone to know, related to our conversation, I guess there's two things. The first thing is for everyone who is frustrated with how the election was handled by the party, know that the Young Democrats is not the party. We are our own organization, and uh, we are influenced by who is a part of it, and that this is the avenue to break into the party because... Anyone who is a member of this organization, at least speaking for myself personally, if someone in the other side of the party, the old Democrats per se, uh, is holding you back, then this organization is here to fight for you. And that um, I, at the end of the day, I want to win. And whatever energy can be pushed towards winning, if the energy is on the more progressive candidates, then they're more likely to win. And so... By disengaging with the organization, that is not the way to see what you want to have happen. Because as far as the platform of this organization and the goals that we want to see uh, throughout the state, it can be as progressive as a lot of other outside groups want to be and are. And, you know, it's like, for example, like Athens for Everyone, there's very few things I disagree with goal wise you know like sure implementation we start talking about how to fund it yeah there's gonna be some disagreements there but goal wise there's no reason why you know the young democrats of uga slash athens could not be a vehicle just like a for e uh you know different tactics probably but still you know like the goals are very similar so that's the first thing the second thing as in seeing where the organization's gonna be um, I want every single candidate and every single um, party official to know that we are, you know, we want to be the front lines of the party and we want to be the foot soldiers. And that if we're going to get this state to where it needs to be, it's going to take some uh, time and commitment and money. <laughs> and that's yeah. going to, you know, be where we need to that's what we're going to need from everyone else because we're not open i mean we're, we're not afraid of having people give us advice and you know give us uh point us in the right direction of where we need to go but we can't just kind of be we got to be part of the conversation we have to be part of the team that's pushing everything forward otherwise uh we're all just kind of in our own silos and yep. not able to coordinate efforts and stuff like that so yep. that's sort of uh what i hope uh to see the organization get to i'm hoping we can have another conversation like this in a year and we we'd be really um excited about how the 2018 elections are heating up and our role in them and you know uh by then we'll have a a gubernatorial candidate to be looking we will. yeah so that's a exciting exciting thing um 
I'm going to break my own rules here and ask one more question, which is how do you feel about the fact that it looks like we're going to be having a pretty, uh, I guess no other word to use it, contentious Stacy primary? <laughs> like, how, how do you feel about this? Um, I always err on the side of um, being excited about <laughs> primaries. That is true. I know folks within the party worry about that. Um, we they, don't are wrong. Fracture, <laughs> yeah, right? they are wrong. Um, Fractured party, but I think yeah. um, I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy yeah. to have the conversation. I think it brings a lot more folks out to the primaries, which, as you know, can help with data, identifying Democrats yes. who we can go to in the general election. So overall, I think it's healthy, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We have two excellent, um, highly qualified, competent candidates, and uh, I'm really excited about what 2018 has in store. And I think for now, it's it's safe to say that we are both very strong supporters of Stacey. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are very strong supporters we of Stacey. Are. Yeah, the, the last thing I say on that is, like, we, we've had enough coordinations uh, in the on state level because um, last couple times at bat, even though I, I liked most of those candidates yeah. a lot, um, I think I think it's it's going to be good to have an actual real fight in the party, and yes. I hope we can learn something from it productive. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's good to talk to you, Gabe. And Thank I'm you, sure Luke. we'll be seeing each other offline soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.